Lord, we bow before you and lift up our prayers for our good friends in Roseville. Ask your richest blessing upon them and uh, our neighbors. Oh, Lord, that we would be vessels for the love of Christ. And now that we'd receive your word with joy and gladness, that it would have its full effect on us, that we would have the hope that comes from being the beloved of Jesus. Help us now, Lord, we pray, uh, by your spirit, in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, word is that our middle and high school students these days are paying rapt attention to the worship services. And of course, parents and others are wondering why. Why are they so interested in what's going on all of a sudden? Is it, is it the pull of the technology we're using? Is it the engaging worship? Is it the hip preaching? Uh, what is pulling our young people in? And it turns out, it's actually none of these. It appears to be related to something called worship bingo, which you can see on your screen now. Um, it's anchored in some patterns that one of our more creative students has observed in our worship services. And yes, we know who you are, right? Um, so the good news is at least they're playing close attention to the worship services these days. The bad news is Worship bingo is about to get a good bit more challenging because um, we are, with apologies to Jake Hatfield, officially out of sweater vest season. Um, Tim Keller completely skipped this passage in his book on the Gospel of Mark. And the camera angle makes it really hard to see Daniel's feet to tell if he really is wearing his worship chacos or not. And basically, that's a free square. Yes, he's wearing his worship chacos. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. We'll pray for God to help us come away with something of greater value here even than bingo, right? And you may remember that the passage Carson preached last week uh, ended like this in verse 6 of chapter 3. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So the stakes are high here. Both religious and political leaders are aligned together plotting to destroy Jesus. His life is literally at risk. And our passage begins in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And the great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So in response, it seems, to the threats against his life, Jesus withdraws with his disciples to the sea. And, and it may well be that this is not just a strategic move in response to stepped-up opposition. Uh, this language of withdrawal is often used to describe Jesus' retreat for times of prayer. But in either case, the crowds find him and they are coming from everywhere. Um, the list of locales that Mark puts out here um, 
emphasizes that reality. They're from the south, they're from the east, they're from the north. But the list represents something really interesting. More than geographical diversity, it's a roadmap for ethnic diversity. The list begins in what is typically Jewish territory. It moves through what is a region mixed between Jew and Gentile, and it ends with Tyre and Sidon, which was largely Gentile turf. Mark is showing us that the nations are coming to Jesus. Even here in the early pages of his gospel, in the early phases of his ministry, this gospel, Mark is telling us, it's for everyone, everywhere. In verse 11, we read that whenever the unclean spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And so again, this theme of the authority of Jesus, even over demons, continues. They fall down before him like an inferior bowing down in front of a superior. They know who he is. This is the very son of God, and he has full authority over demons. But Jesus, again, silences the spirits. We already saw him do it back in chapter 1. He does not want his PR coming from evil spirits. And that's for obvious reasons, right? And now we see that Jesus, even though he ministers amongst these great crowds, his focus is increasingly on his disciples, on the 12. Verse 13, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So we find Jesus retreating to a mountain. This is, again, often a place of prayer for Jesus. Mark doesn't mention it, but Luke makes it explicit when he describes this trip to the mountain. In Luke chapter 6, he says, In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve. So when facing a monumental decision, like whom he's going to pass the baton of the kingdom to, Jesus retreats for prayer all night, in fact. It's exemplary for us in this. And Jesus selects 12 men. Not 13, not 10, 12. Why 12? Well, it corresponds to the 12 tribes of Israel. And here in these men... Symbolically, Jesus is reconstituting the people of God in new wineskins, as Jesus would put it. These are 12 men. They are of his choosing. He calls and they come. Clearly, they aren't presented here as volunteers. They are called by Jesus, again, authoritatively, and they come. And it's interesting, this list of name, it varies from gospel to gospel a little bit, but always Peter, James, and John are always the first 
And they form a kind of inner circle around Jesus. And these three are given by Jesus nicknames. The Rock, Sons of Thunder. It sounds a lot like a WWE title match, right? But it's interesting, none of these guys are from the religious elite. There's no, no scribes, no priests. They're just regular folk, fishermen, tax collectors and such. And a number of them are virtually anonymous. I mean, men uh, like Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, nearly half of the disciples are never heard from again in Mark's gospel. All we know is they were chosen by Jesus. And I imagine, I like to imagine that that was enough of a reputation for them. Chosen by Jesus simply because he desired them to be with him. It's a good time just to stop and reflect on that. Is that the great legacy of your life? I mean, can you say that you've been chosen by Jesus simply because he wanted you to be with him and that's enough for you? How do you sort that out? Well, faith is the expression of being chosen. If you have or if you will trust and follow Jesus, that is your evident response to his ever persuasive call. He calls we come. And there's no greater legacy than that, being chosen by Jesus simply because he wished it so. And he says here, Mark does, that they were called for two main purposes, right? In verse 14 and 15. He appointed the 12, whom he also named apostles or sent ones, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority even to cast out demons. So the two purposes of Jesus' calling for both disciples then and disciples now is that they would be and be sent. First, that they might be. That is, that they might be with him. That they might do life together with Jesus for the next three years and be actively mentored by Jesus himself. But in that be with him language, I detect also a flavor of a desire for companionship. Back in the language of verse 13, I see it too, where Jesus called to him those whom he desired. I think Jesus genuinely wanted the company of these 12 very every day, a whole lot like you and me kind of people. And perhaps one of the most amazing statements in the entire Bible is right along these lines, and it comes from John's gospel, and it says from the lips of Jesus, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus loves his disciples. That's right at the heart of why he chose them and why he chose us. Those of us who believe we are the chosen beloved of God. Now there's a second a purpose in those verses of the calling of the disciples and calling us. And that's that he might send us out to 
preach. And I know that sounds really intimidating for a lot of you. Preach? Like, who, me? Um, it, it need not be like Billy Graham, right, to stadiums full of folk. It can just mean that he sent us out to talk about him. It's actually the same language that's used of that talkative leper back in chapter one. You remember him in verse 45, chapter one? That leper was cleansed, he went out, and he began to talk freely about what Jesus had done and to spread the news. That's all this means. Jesus sent them and us to talk about what he's done for us. This morning, would you say you're prepared to talk about Jesus with your friends or with your family, to talk about why you follow Jesus, to talk about what he has done for you, to share the three circles or the four laws or the two lines or the one verse bridge or whatever method you like? Are you prepared to talk to somebody about Jesus? You've got friends who need Jesus and family who need Jesus. So here's a talking point for lunch, an extra one. What's one reason that you're glad to follow Jesus? And share that with the people around your table. What's one reason you're glad to follow Jesus? What's one thing he's done for you that you're glad of? So on the screen you see, this, this is my neighborhood. It's from the Bless Every Home app we've been encouraging you to log into. And this is where I've been sent to talk to my neighbors about Jesus and what he's done for me, okay? This is, this is my neighborhood. Where are you sent? To your neighborhood where you live? To your workplace? Your extended family? Your classes at school? Where you shop? Where you hope to get your hair done one day soon? Um, hey, disciples are sent to talk about Jesus, right? And it says here, we're sent with authority over demons. And that, I don't have time to unpack a lot of it, but it means at least two things for us for sure, right? Your prayers matter. When you sense a neighbor or a friend or a family member is up against something that the Bible would call unclean or evil, your prayers in Jesus' name, have power, greater power. Your prayers matter. And the second thing I'll say about this big subject is, hey, we need not fear evil. Jesus has shared with his friends his own authority. We need not fear evil. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, right? No fear. Well, now we move to a section where Mark uses a literary device called a sandwich. It's actually called intercalation, but I like sandwich, so we'll call it a sandwich this morning. And the bread of the sandwich, the two slices of bread, happen in verse 20 and then down in verse 32. Look at verse 20 and 21. Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Curious thing in the middle of a sandwich. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, drop down to verse 32. And a crowd was sitting around him, 
And they said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. Now in both slices, if you read the context, Jesus is in a house surrounded by a crowd and his family are trying, seeking to control him, to bind him, you could say. In the middle section, the meat of this sandwich, we see that it is Jesus who does the binding. He has authority over all, and no one has authority over him. Not demons, not religious authorities, not even his family. Look again, verse 20. Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. And the crowds are pressing Jesus incredibly. And the crowds here are as much a deterrent to ministry as they are an opportunity. And his family is pressing him too, but in a different way. They think he's lost his mind. And the scribes here, the Bible scholars, they think even worse of him. Look at verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So it's ironic, but in the worst sense here of irony, that the Bible scholars declare that he is demon-possessed while the demons declare that he is the son of God. There's something terribly wrong with that picture. Notice that the scribes don't doubt the miracles. They question the source of his power to do miracles. And, and, and even though they've witnessed the miraculous deliverance of many, and they don't deny it, they still refuse to believe. Miracles are not always the certain key to faith. More miracles is not always the answer to helping people believe. Verse 23, he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So Jesus now rebuts these scholars' accusations that he's demon-possessed with three little mini parables. A divided kingdom cannot stand. A divided house cannot stand, and a strong man can only be bound by one stronger. The idea that Jesus is casting out demons, he is saying, by the authority of Satan makes no sense. Rather than this being a case of a divided house where Satan is plundering his own house, Jesus here is saying, this is an invasion by a superior force. Jesus is the stronger man who has bound Satan and is setting free those Satan has enslaved. Now, since Jesus is already plundering Satan's house, he's already casting out lots of demons, freeing them captives, 
it may well be here that the binding in view here, while having its fulfillment on the cross, took place initially at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when Jesus prevailed over Satan threefold temptations, you remember, in, in the desert, in the wilderness. And if that's the case, if that's where the binding started to take place when Satan was triumphed over by Jesus in the desert, then it may well be that we greatly limit Satan's rule simply by resisting his temptations. Saying no to a temptation may have a far greater effect than you know. Verse 28 Jesus says, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So when you hear me read those verses, what jumps out at you? Was it the idea that there's a sin that cannot be forgiven, an eternal sin? I get that. But don't miss the far more amazing thing that Jesus says first. Okay? Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter. Okay? This is amazing. All sins, whatever blasphemies, will be forgiven. Um, Princess Lala Salma of Morocco gave birth to a daughter named Lala Khadija. And when that happened, her husband, King Mohammed VI of Morocco, was delighted. In fact, he was so delighted that as part of his celebration, Instead of giving out cigars, he pardoned 8,836 prisoners and reduced the sentences of 24,218 other prisoners. The justice ministry said the pardons were a humanitarian gesture. Indeed, that's a pretty amazing gesture, right? Freeing just short of 10,000 prisoners. Jesus here says, All sins will be forgiven. Whatever blasphemies have been uttered. That's stunning. If you've blasphemed God, you can be forgiven. Forgiveness for all, for everything. I love the way the psalmist wrote about it. He said, as far as the east is from the west... So far has he removed our transgressions from us. All of them. All of them. This can be yours in Christ. It is yours if you trust and follow Jesus. Jesus has the authority, Mark says, to forgive sins. All of them. All of them. But there is that one he will not forgive. And so now we're ready to look at that exception clause. So again, verse 28, truly I say to you, 
all sins will be forgiven, the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So this exception that Jesus alludes to here, it's referred to sometimes as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That is blasphemy against God himself. And commonly, scholars will explain this in two ways. And honestly, there's pretty significant overlap between the two ways. The first way, it's often pointed out, is that this is a persisting state of unbelief, not a single sin, but a state of persistent unbelief in Jesus. If you consistently reject Jesus, then this is an eternal sin from which you will not be forgiven. A second view draws on the context here from that last verse where they were saying he has an unclean spirit. It's the idea that the unforgivable sin is the stubborn refusal to acknowledge that God is truly at work and has worked in the man Jesus. Even here going so far as to attribute the works of Jesus to Satan and his minions. That seems to be what's behind the idea of this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And Professor James Edwards helpfully answers the questions, the question that sometimes plagues many of us, and that is, have I committed this unpardonable sin? This is what he says. It's so helpful. He says, anyone who is worried about having committed the sin against the Holy Spirit has not yet committed it. For anxiety of having done so is evidence of the potential that you could repent and be forgiven. There is no record in Scripture of anyone asking forgiveness of God and being denied it. So if you're concerned, he's saying, about having committed an eternal sin, you haven't committed it yet. Heed those words of comfort. But now let's return to that other slice of bread and Jesus' interaction with his family. And listen closely here to the contrast between Jesus' family on the one hand and the crowd gathered with Jesus on the other. Verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. So it's interesting, as Mark records it here, the crowd is inside with Jesus. His family is on the outside. The crowd is in a posture of sitting around Jesus at his feet. This is the posture of a disciple. A disciple that's sitting under their master's teaching, right? But his family is standing again outside. It's a posture that may convey indifference. And they are calling him to them. See, this place and posture of Jesus' family, it's amplified by that uh, accusation they brought back in verse 21, that he's out of his mind, right? They stand on the outside, and they seek to control Jesus, while his disciples, the crowd here, are on the inside, sitting under his teaching. One group is trying to seize Jesus, and the other 
is being seized by him. Which group are you in? I mean, honestly, which posture best describes your life? Well, our passage here closes with Jesus expounding on his true family. Verse 33, he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And so amidst this troubling rejection by his own family who thinks he's unstable at best, An even more troubling rejection by the religious scholars. They think he has a demon. Jesus now points out his true family. They're seated at his feet. They're listening to his teaching. They're doing the will of God. Just like you are this morning. Here are my mother and my brothers, Jesus says. What does that statement mean for those of us who believe and follow Jesus. We are to Jesus like brothers and sisters. And those are not just empty, trite, southern religious greetings, right? Jesus has affection for you and commitment to you like a brother, like a sister. Yeah, you know, I have a brother, he's more than 10 years older than me. And so when I was growing up, he was out of the house before I even turned 10. And uh, we, we didn't really grow up together that much. And we've, we've always stayed in touch, but we're not really close. He lives up at, back in the Midwest still, and I'm down here. And we talk from time to time, but we hardly ever see each other. But I guarantee you, if I got word that my brother needed me, man, I'd be on the first plane with my mask on, headed to Illinois to see my brother, because he's my brother. Jesus is drawing on that and saying, that's how I love you. All the more, I love you like family. Again, we're back to this amazing idea that we are the ones that Jesus has chosen to love like family. You may remember from a couple weeks ago, I came to trust and follow Jesus at a a dusty old movie theater in Peoria, Illinois that was showing a movie by the Billy Graham Association. And in all those movies back in the day, they always showed footage of Billy Graham preaching at one of his big revivals. And so as a result of that, I've always had a bit of a tender spot for Dr. Graham's preaching of the gospel. And uh, moving to North Carolina, his home state, uh, has only added to that, that tenderness, really. Anyway, there's a little short video by Dr. Graham with his son Franklin that's always been to me a powerful declaration of the love of God, even for the likes of me. And so I'd like us to just wrap up our time together this morning by letting you listen in on that little declaration of the love of God for you from from Dr. Graham. He is jealous for me, loves like a hurricane, I am a tree. Bending beneath away to his wind and mercy. God loves you. And he loves you with a love that you don't even know anything about. 
because there is no human love comparable to divine love. God loves you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to have fellowship with you. It doesn't make any difference how far you tried to run from God. He loves you. His eye is on you. He sees you. God created us in His image and you as a person are important to God. The Bible says that God has the hairs of your head numbered. Every moment of your life is watched by God. Oh, how He loves us so. Oh, how He loves us. How He loves us so. God is listening. And God loves you. He's your friend. He'll put His arm around you. And He understands. And He answers. And He's sympathetic to your problems. God loves you. And the Bible says that God sent His Son from heaven to this earth for you. Jesus Christ came to this earth to take your sins upon a cross. And He would have died had you been the only person in the whole world. He loves you. Don't ever forget, He loves, 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 loves you. When Jesus Christ was nailed to that cross, He did that for you. That's how much He loves us. The Bible says, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. God loves you. And God has a plan for your life. So, bingo, right? That's it. That's what you're looking for this morning. And for those of you who trust and follow Jesus, you are the ones he desired to call. The ones he called simply because he wanted you to be with him. You are the ones he considers his true family. He loves you like a brother, like a sister. Know this morning, that he loves, 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 loves you forever and ever and ever and ever. And he has sent you, sent you just to talk about that very best of news, the love of Christ, with the people that he's put in your path, even during this pandemic, even in a time of quarantine. Would you bow with me? And let's go to the Lord who loves us in prayer. Jesus, we watch you. You're, the crowds are about to crush you. The, the leaders are about to kill you. And you look out and see a ragtag band of believers that you want to be with you. And uh, scripture tells us that you've looked into history and seen us in the same way, called us. And our faith is the evidence of that calling. And um, 
Lord, let's pray for us this morning. I pray we'd be awash with the love of God, the love of Jesus for us. And that, um, that we would fulfill those good purposes of being with him and being sent to talk about him. Lord, open a door for the gospel. Just crack the door open this week for us. Ready our hearts to speak. Give us words in those moments. Jesus, we love you. Help us to love you more. We pray in your name. Amen.